I needed that in the first service. Um, before I begin, I just want to say, uh, I mentioned about two or three weeks ago um, when uh, Eric and Dylan were not here, that uh, Eric Rowell and Dylan too were going to be heading off to seminary soon, and I believe this may be Dylan's last Sunday or close to it. Not at all. A couple of weeks. So at any rate, just keep them in your prayers. I just want to acknowledge that publicly to uh, those who are here as well as those uh, who are watching at home uh, to keep them in your prayers as they uh, go to seminary and, and begin their studies for, uh, for ministry. We appreciate these two men on our worship team and uh, very much and, and appreciate all that they've done, their commitment to the body. It's been a lot of fun uh, to uh, have Dylan join us and to have Eric grow up in the midst of us. So we appreciate that very much. Okay, I want to begin by maybe making you a little bit mad. Uh, Franklin Graham's organization, the Samaritan's Purse, has roughly the same statement of faith I just read it yesterday at Sigma Mountain Bible Church. What we believe is what they believe. Uh, we're familiar with Samaritan's Purse from Operation Christmas Child. We always fill the shoeboxes every, every Christmas. But they do a lot more, especially disaster relief uh, across the globe. So when the, when the pandemic looked like it was going to devastate New York, who showed up with doctors and nurses and support personnel to set up a field hospital? Samaritan's Purse. Now, that, Samaritan's Purse does have some full-time workers uh, who are salaried, uh, but they have many, many volunteers. And none of, the vol none of the workers were required to go to New York to serve there. Um, some of you remember Becky Jensen, sister-in-law to Phil and Donna Carter. Becky and Bob, her husband, used to be here at our church. They now live in North Carolina. Becky was there working with Samaritan's Purse uh, at the uh, uh, hospital, field hospital in New York. Uh, conditions were not pleasant. Um, they couldn't go anywhere, of course. They had to take their meals outside, rain or shine, and they themselves were confined to the, uh, uh, the on-campus location. So that's what they did. Now, here's the reaction to that, uh, to those volunteers, from those who truly do not like conservative Christians. And I want you to keep in mind, if we had been there, this is what would have been said about us. And the criticism was not Democrat versus Republican. That had nothing to do with it. It was focused on two issues. One, the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. And number two, that salvation is through Christ alone. Many people said they felt threatened by the slogan, quote, helping in Jesus' name, um, which was printed on the Samaritan's Purse trucks outside the field hospital. The speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson, described Franklin Graham as, quote, notoriously bigoted. And he said that the group's, quote, continued presence here is an, is an affront to our values of inclusion, unquote. The local group Reclaim Pride Coalition organized protests against Samaritan's Purse, which they said made many LGBT New Yorkers feel personally attacked and personally at risk. Now, they weren't personally attacked, but they had feelings of being personally attacked. And these days, feelings are reality and are therefore news. New York State Senator Brad Hoyleman tweeted, quote, it's a shame 
that the federal government has left New York with no other choice but to accept charity from bigots. The headline in the uh, LGBTQ papers read, quote, Viciously anti-LGBTQ group runs Central Park Tent Hospital and forces volunteers to reject gay rights, unquote. I taught, I taught logic for 20 years, and uh, there is so much emotive language packed into that statement, I would not know where to start. When Samaritan's Purse was leaving New York, this was the headline in the New York Times, May the 10th, quote, Franklin Graham is taking down his New York hospital, but not going quietly, unquote, implying that he was being dragged kicking and screaming out of New York. It was only later in the story that you read that their work was done, they were no longer needed, and that there was no evidence of discrimination in any way during their entire time there. Um, now, story over, right? Not yet. Then Governor Cuomo declared that, the New, York, that New York State plans to send an income tax bill to uh, the out-of-state health care workers who came to work in New York City because if you work in New York longer than two weeks, you not only pay federal but also state income taxes. Franklin Graham asked uh, if the coronavirus volunteers can be excused, uh, but Governor Cuomo said no. And if you'd been there, all of these things would have happened to you and would have been said of you. Now, what's your reaction? It raises my hackles. I have hackles. It raises them at the unfairness of it. Hey, you're the bigot. Next time, set up your own hospital, you whining ingrate. Feels kind of good to say that. But it sure does not help. That would not win a lot of hearts. Here's how Franklin Graham responded. He said that the taxes were not a problem. They were happy to help. Samaritan's Purse would pay the extra tax burden for its workers. And that they wanted New York to know that any time New York had another crisis and they needed them, they would be back immediately to help in Jesus' name. Now, you would hope that that kind of gracious response would diffuse all kinds of criticism. Nope. <laughs> but it was the right response. It was the right response. How do you respond when life is not fair? In our studies in 1 Peter, we've been looking at all kinds of circumstances in which believers are facing unfair persecution from various sources and are told to respond with grace to unbelievers. This entire section of this epistle is about living in the awareness of four axioms. I'm going to read these axioms to you. I'm going to repeat them three times in the sermon. Here they are. Number one, life in this fallen world is not fair. Don't expect it to be. Don't be surprised when bad things happen. Number two, even when God lived in this fallen world, life was not fair to him. Number three, if you were to live for God in this fallen world, specifically revel in the awareness of his presence in your life. And four, as you live for God, your life will be under scrutiny by an audience of unsaved spectators who may 
intentionally misunderstand you and your motives, but who will take notice of how you handle the unfairness of this, un of this fallen world. So in today's section in 1 Peter, Peter talks about relationships. And of all the relationships where we might label persecution or unfairness, where people are subject to abuse, Peter begins with the absolute worst, slavery. Because whatever applies in that hardest situation would apply much more easily in a lesser situation. Because otherwise, somebody could say to Peter, yeah, Peter, I heard what you're saying in theory, but you know, here is a worse situation. How would you apply it to that? And then later, and here, Peter, this is an even worse situation. How would you apply it to that? So what Peter does is he preemptively goes for the gold with slavery. How do you live as a Christian when you have no rights at all? When you are literally property. Before I get into the text, I want to talk a little bit about slavery itself globally, historically, and what we see in Scripture, a perspective, a big picture perspective there. Because I want to be clear about what we do mean and what we don't mean. I'm going to curve back around to that at the end of our study. But I'm painting with a broad brush when I tell you that script, in Scripture we learn that God created three institutions but regulated four. He created the institution of government. He created the institution of marriage. He created the, the church. And he regulated all three of those. But he also regulated a fourth institution that he did not create, and that is slavery. Most of the regulation that he did for slavery was to restrain abuse. So how do we think about this? Because we're conditioned to think of slavery in the images and categories that took place in our own country pre-Civil War, whites enslaving blacks. But I, I want us to, to broaden that perspective a bit because if you are almost embarrassed that the Bible teaches us how to live with slavery, let me say that life would have been much harder for believers over the centuries if Scripture did not teach about this. Because slavery has existed in all of human history in all places, in all times, on every continent except Antarctica, and is still with us today. Africans enslaved other Africans. Not only did Africans enslave other Africans, but they kept more slaves for themselves than they sold into the northern hemisphere, into the I'm sorry, the western hemisphere. Asians enslaved other Asians. Even Native Americans enslaved other Native Americans. And, and, of course, most groups cross-enslaved each other. Thomas Sowell writes that European whites were bought and sold in the Ottoman Empire for decades after American blacks had been freed. According to Henry Gage, I'm sorry, Henry Gates, uh, who directs Harvard's Center for African American Studies, and, and this is apparently one of those rare things where uh, the documentation seems to be solid because there are mo multiple cross-referential records of ship's logs, trading uh, uh, company uh, logs, and um, um, port of entry logs. So according to Henry Gates at Harvard's Center for African American Studies, quote, between 1525 and 1866, 
the entire history of the slave trade to the New World, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World. And that includes North America, South America, and the Caribbean. Brazil received 4.86 million Africans. How many were shipped to the United States? 388,000. Which, for that 30-year period, I'm sorry, for that 300-year period, is 3% of the global slave trade. Brazil was at 39%. Now, slavery is mostly stopped in industrialized countries, but only in the United States. Only in the United States was there a civil war that included moral revulsion to this institution, in which almost the same number of men died in just the Union Army, 360,000, as the total number of slaves that had been imported for about three centuries. Now, we are a very imperfect country in many ways. But there is some perspective here. And this is not to say, hey, it wasn't so bad compared. No. It's not to say, hey, everything is fine now. No, it's not. Lewis and I have uh, black pastor friends with whom we enjoy close fellowship. And they see oppression through an entirely different lens than we do. But just for a point of comparison, Arab slaves took... Uh, slavers took far more Africans uh, as, as slaves than European slavers did, and they took them to the Saharan salt mines where the life expectancy was five years. All this is to say, if you were a Christian slave over those centuries, living in a world that you did not have power to change, you would be very thankful for God's instruction on how to be a slave, first of all to Christ, and then to your earthly master. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the New Testament entirely upended slavery, specifically starting with the gospel. And after the epistles were written, especially Philemon, slavery would never again be considered consistent with Christian living. But let's back up a little bit further. When Peter and Paul were talking about slavery, because both of them did, what did Christians in that culture think about? Their context was very different from what we had in our country. Um, it was mostly white on white, and it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. The Roman Empire contained an approximate, an estimated number of 60 million slaves, which was half of the empire. They, yes, they did unskilled labor, but they were also trained as doctors, teachers, secretaries, musicians, actors. You could argue that the instructions to slave in Scripture assume that they can read, that they're literate. Slaves were mostly trusted and were often loved. But slavery still is a horrible institution. Slaves were not allowed to marry. They cohabitated, cohabited, but their children were not the property of the parents, but of their owners. Under Roman law, a slave had no rights, no claim to justice. Aristotle wrote, quote, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So Peter applies the gospel 
into that worldview. But there is instruction here for all of us as we deal with all kinds of unfairness or unreasonable people and increasingly with those who hate what we believe. Now we're going to jump back into the passage, into the context. If you, I want to just remind you that in verses 9 through 12, Paul had, I'm sorry, Peter had exhorted his readers, keep your behavior excellent. In verses 13 through 17, he told them to submit to authorities, not because the authorities deserved it, but in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. In verse 16, act as free men. And then in verse 18, he begins by allowing, yeah, some masters may be good, but some masters are unreasonable. And his instruction that we're about to go into in detail is for the unreasonable, the worst case scenario. Peter is targeting the most vulnerable position that any Christian could be in in the first century. And if we apply what he says about authority structures to the slave master scenario, then it's much easier to apply it to a less challenging relationship like soldier commander or a police citizen or employer employee. P- Peter lays out the pattern for all Christians, and that is that we are to trace Christ. It truly is, what would Jesus do? WWJD does apply here because, because, number one, life in this fallen world is not fair. Number two, even when God lived in this fallen world, it was not fair to him. Number three, you were to live for God in this fallen world specifically to revel in the awareness of his sovereign presence in your life. And number four, as you live for him, your life will be under scrutiny by an audience of unsaved spectators who may intentionally misunderstand you and your motives, but who will take notice of how you handle the unfairness of this fallen world. So that's where we're going. Look at verse 18. Again, uh, verses 18 through 20 focus on servants who suffer. And then when we get to verses 21 to 25, they focus on the suffering servant. Verse 18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So he begins by acknowledging that some Christian slaves will have masters who are kind. But, and and maybe that, maybe Philemon was like that. I, I don't know. But he assumes that some slaves will have masters that are cruel. Plus, any good master could do unfair things. We remember the story of Joseph, who was honored and trusted as a slave in Potiphar's household until Potiphar's wife falsely accused him uh, of attacking her when she had attacked Joseph. Uh, But slaves had no legal rights, and it was Joseph who ended up in jail, not Potiphar's wife. So unfair things can happen across the spectrum, and some masters were just downright cruel. Peter uses the word that's translated unreasonable, It's a Greek word from which we get the word scoliosis, a crooked spine. The idea behind the word is that some people have crooked, twisted thinking, and you can't reason with them. And the worst thing imaginable is if they are your master and you are literally their property. How do you live with that? Peter says simply in verse 19, this finds favor. If for the sake of the conscience of conscience towards God, 
A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now this is kind of an awkward Greek sentence structure. It's a little bit hard to grasp, but the meaning seems to be that because you are to live in an ongoing awareness of God's sovereign presence in your life, and your allegiance is ultimately to Him, not to any human master, then you patiently endure it. You endure it. Really, this is the third axiom, isn't it? We are to live for God in this fallen world and specifically revel in the awareness of His sovereign presence in our life. Verse 20 explains verse 19 in a little bit more detail. Verse 20 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. There's, there's no well-done, good, and faithful servant for uh, enduring suffering you bring on yourself. But, he continues, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, which means what God says is right, you, in other words, you're suffering for doing God's will, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And his point is not that suffering finds favor with God, but how you handle suffering finds favor with God. Many of you remember Bill Brown is a very good friend of our church and, and uh, of me and Betsy, uh, he and his wife Lynn. Remember the story, perhaps, of, of how Bill's wife Lynn was told by her boss, and this was in the early 80s, she was told by her boss to falsify a, re- a report in the business where she was working. She said, uh, I can't do that. And uh, he told her if she refused, he'd find someone who would, and she'd be fired. So he told her to let him know the next day. The next day, she still refused, and she was fired. The cost you pay for integrity can be high. There may be no happy ending. But Peter is not referring to just a short span of suffering a moment of suffering but suffering that may last for a period of time he describes it as patient endurance Uh, i think i could get geared up for a suffering that was temporary but long term patient endurance it's one thing to get fired for a job and then find another it's a very different thing to be a slave owned by an unreasonable twisted thinking master But the longer that you endure, the more that you'll please God and the more that you'll grow in Christ's likeness. And that will be noticed. Peter then says in the first words of verse 21 that we are called to suffer. Oh, Jesus said the same thing. If they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. John 15. Paul said, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I hope you see the bigger plan here. Whether you are a slave or not, you are an ambassador representing Jesus Christ. And you live on a mission field called Earth. And you are to trace Christ in your life in such a way that will put love and grace and truth on display because that world, even though it may be curious and resentful and hostile, is watching. Now, what do I mean by tracing Christ? I can get there in a moment. In verses 21 to 25, Peter moves from suffering servants to the suffering servant in Isaiah. It was Jesus. Jesus came to function as a slave, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but become slaves to righteousness. 
Romans 6, Romans 8. But imagine a skeptic is interviewing Peter about this, and he said, okay, Peter, I hear what you're saying. I understand all of this theory about change in identity, about being a royal priesthood. All of this stuff sounds good and well, and I understand it theoretically. You've already just said in chapter 2, verse 16, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. I get that, Peter. Good advice, but practically... What does radical servanthood to Jesus look like if you are literally a slave to a horrible master, a Simon Legree? Doesn't all this theory evaporate under the weight of reality when your life is literally at the whim of somebody else? So Peter points to Jesus, the creator who placed himself under the evil whims of his creatures because for jesus the stakes here are higher than mere life and death let me repeat that for jesus the stakes here are higher than mere life and death the one who created the universe was born into a lower class couple uh, in a borrowed stable lived a sinless life and was executed by those who had power over him uh, he was slandered, he was lied about, he was lied to, and there were false witnesses around him. If, 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 we were, <laughs> if the Pharisees and Sadducees controlled the news media in those days, uh, they would have covered Jesus using all that slander and lying and false witnesses, and we would look at that coverage and we would feel outrage, wouldn't we? We'd feel outrage. We'd want to fix it. We'd want to fight back on his behalf. It's probably what the angels wanted to do. I don't know. But it's exactly the opposite of what Peter is calling us to. And I want you to think about something here. Think about the history of the time. Most Jews at that time, including Peter, including Peter, grew up with the stories of the Maccabean martyrs of Jewish history who had defied the Greeks and called for God's vengeance on their persecutors. They fought injustice. They didn't patiently endure it. They fought it. And the Jews are very proud of the Maccabees. Hanukkah commemorates the first Maccabean victory. You'll remember that some people hoped that uh, Jesus would be another Jewish deliverer, this time from Rome. Maccabee 2.0, that this would be Jesus. And Peter apparently had that in his mind as well. Because when Jesus started talking about going to the cross, you remember what Peter did? He took him aside and rebuked him. In the back of Peter's mind, there's more Maccabean than Messiah. Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me. What's the word? Satan. But for now, when we read, second, um, when we read first Peter, now for Peter, now for Peter, everything has changed. Everything has changed. One writer put it this way. The cross, once so repulsive to Peter, has now become his central focus. As far as I know, Peter was not an eyewitness of the crucifixion. Um, he mentions that he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration. He doesn't mention the crucifixion. For, uh, as far as we know, he, he followed and then he denied Jesus in the courtyard and then ran away and wept bitterly. Um, 
John 19 mentions four people who were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion, and Peter's, Peter's not mentioned among them. What Peter does here in the next verses is he gives God's eyewitness testimony from Isaiah. Because as you remember, in the ways in which we've studied First Peter thus far, we've seen that Peter has become a very deep student of Scripture, and he has been memorizing Isaiah 53. Look at verse 21 again. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, Christ suffered for you, to leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now the word example is a Greek word that occurs only here in all of the New Testament. It's the word hupogramon. It's a compound word of two words, hupa meaning under, like hupodermis, under skin, hypodermic needle, okay? Only it's hupogramon. Gramon is the word for letters or grammar. A child learning the letters would place paper over the letters and trace them. And here's the word picture. You are to trace Jesus. That's what he's saying. You are to trace Jesus. He is your pattern. Uh, tomorrow's more Memorial Day. Uh, many men my age have gone to the Vietnam, Vietnam Wall at the, at the memorial. And uh, I understand there's paper and charcoal there. And many people go there and trace the names of comrades, of family members uh, who died. What Peter is saying is you're not tracing a name. You are tracing an entire pattern of behavior laid out by God himself. And the specific place where it's laid out is in Isaiah 53. Verse 22, he begins to quote Isaiah. Remember, I've mentioned that Peter's just a student of Scripture. He is an apostolic sponge absorbing the Old Testament, just as Jesus taught the disciples after the resurrection. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes on 1 Peter 2, and I'm going to read from Isaiah 53. 1 Peter 2, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. 1 Peter 2, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Isaiah 53, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many and will bear their iniquities. I'm going to skip to the last phrase of verse 24. By his wounds you are healed. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions, for our iniquities, and by his scourging we are healed. 1 Peter 2, you were continually straying like sheep. Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now back up in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Look at that verse again, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Skipping down a bit. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. If you're going to trace Christ, if you're going to live for Him, you have to come to grips with the way that Jesus kept entrusting Himself. And it's, a, it's an imperfect tense, which means it was an ongoing process. It wasn't just punctiliar. It was something that happened over time. Continual activity. He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. His, his submission was not to the Jewish authorities or to the Roman authorities, but to God the Father, the ultimate authority. So, that's what we are to do as we trace Christ. Let's finish the passage in, in verses 20 to 23. Jesus was our example. Now verses 24 and 25, uh, the emphasis on Je- is on Jesus as our Savior. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. By the way, for a, for a slave, that was very literal. Very literal. If you're beaten, remember how Jesus was beaten. If you're flogged, remember how Jesus was lashed and scourged. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Wow. This passage passage is just tight. Let's go back to what Peter said in verse 20. When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. In verse 21, tells us that we are called to suffer. I have a question for you. Let's, let's apply what Peter has said to Jesus because that's the way Peter um, uh, enriches his points by pointing to Isaiah 53. Question, did Jesus suffer for doing what was right? Yes. Question, did Jesus patiently endure it? Yes. Question, was Jesus even called to this ministry of suffering? Yes. Then trace Christ in your response to tough challenges. Clearly the gospel is not come to Jesus and receive health and wealth. Jesus said, take up your cross daily, follow me. And that includes having to patiently endure things. And God will use our suffering to bring people to Christ. But Gary, I'm not enslaved. I'm not sure how to do this. Well, we could talk about being a slave to sin. But actually, yeah, really, I mean, really, anything less than slavery should be an easier application. Trace Christ. We cannot trace the ministry of Christ as atoning ministry, but we can trace the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, Philippians 2 says, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we live out the attitudes, the self-sacrificial love, the passion for truth that is fully evident in Jesus, our Savior. Now, as we close, I'm going to circle back around to something. I want to circle back around to the social evil of slavery. Um, in our country, it seems to remain as a raw wound that is hard to heal. And some groups seem like they don't want it to heal. 
Um, I want to talk about this biblically because throughout human history, the gospel has been the enemy of slavery because the seeds of its destruction are embedded within the gospel. It all has to do with what we could say identity versus function. If your identity is a slave, then the gospel changes nothing for you because you don't understand who you are. But if that is just your function and your identity is something else, then everything changes because as Peter has told us, what is your identity? You are a royal priesthood. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that they were new creatures in Christ. He wrote to the Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither there's slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And he also wrote to the Corinthian slaves, and he told them, get free if you can, 1 Corinthians 7. The people who were most intimidated by the gospel in that day were the pagan masters. They were the unreasonable ones in our text. What if a pagan master knew that his slave followed a religion that taught that all social barriers were broken down <laughs> and that if he too became a christian he and his slave would be considered equal before god equal before god in christ your earthly master no longer has first place in your obedience only your heavenly master you obey the earthly master but you belong to your heavenly master and this would mean that any leverage that a hostile slave owner possessed would be greatly diminished, reduced, because the intimidation, the threats of death would no longer have the same effect on that slave because death would usher that slave into Jesus' arms. That's why pagan masters were infuriated against Christianity. The gospel undermines slavery in every way so that it could not be sustained, even within the church, or especially within the church. All distinctions were to be set aside. In Christ, in Christ, the Christian slave was equal with his Christian master. They were both in Christ. In fact, the slave might actually be an elder shepherding his master. One of the earliest bishops of Rome was named Callistus, and he was a slave. A woman named Vibia Perpetua was a Roman aristocrat who became a Christian. Her, she owned a, sla a Christian slave named Felicitas. They were martyred together, hand in hand, in 203. You know the story of Onesimus and Philemon, I think. Maybe you've not spent much time in that book. Many have made comments and things I'm about to say are not original with me. But Philemon was a, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Onesimus was a slave that had run away from Philemon, his master. And somehow, Onesimus came across the path of the Apostle Paul, who led him to the Lord and then discipled him. And now, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. But now things are different. So Paul writes in this one-chapter book, characterizing Philemon's relationship to Onesimus as no longer in the category of commerce, but now in the category of love. He's no longer a mere slave. Now he is a brother. Paul tells Philemon that his new relationship with Onesimus is not temporal, but now, quote, eternal. Paul tells Philemon that Onesimus is now in the Lord. 
which is the same identity that Philemon has. Their identity is not an issue, and this, this is a big thing. Uh, their identity is now identical. Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus the same way he would receive Paul himself. I mean, think about that. If I were to show up at your door the way that you received me, that's how I want, I want you to receive your runaway, returned slave. All of this would ruin Philemon with, with all other safe slave owners. And it would change everything within Philemon's own household. But that's what happens with the gospel. Remember the four axioms. Life in this fallen world is not fair. Don't expect it to be. Number two, even when God lived in this fallen world, it was not fair to him. Number three, you are to live for God and specifically you are to revel in the awareness of his sovereign presence in your life. Because number four, as you live for him, your life will be under scrutiny by an audience of unsaved spectators who may intentionally misunderstand you and your motives, but who will take notice of how you handle the unfairness of this fallen world. And Jesus, the suffering servant, will be glorified. And the very reason he became the suffering servant the gospel will be on full display. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to trace Christ. I ask, Lord, that we would be faithful in what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.